The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. You know, over the course of, of his administration, uh, the U.S. conducted more than 200 declared strikes in Somalia. It was an almost a, a 500% increase over the eight years of the Obama presidency. So, you know, it was, it was a massive change. And I think it's one of the, the key reasons that, uh, that this attack was, was carried out. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, a key reason why uh, a woman and child were then killed in the strike. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 13th, 2023. In August... The U.S. Africa Command, a.k.a. AFRICOM, reported that it had killed 13 al-Shabaab fighters in southern Somalia, though the U.S. government said that it did not kill any civilians this time around. Several past airstrikes have claimed innocent lives. In one notable example from March 2018, U.S. drone operators killed a 22-year-old mother, Lul Dahir Mohammed, and her four-year-old daughter, Miriam, as they hitched a ride in a pickup truck with suspected militants. In a recently published article for The Intercept, Nick Terse offers an unprecedented account of the March 2018 strike thanks to his reporting in Mogadishu and a secret Pentagon investigation he obtained through a Freedom of Information Act request. As Nick writes, This is a story about misconnections, flawed intelligence, and fatal blindness. It started with bad cell service and ended with an American missile obliterating civilians the U.S. didn't intend to kill, but didn't care enough to save. I sat down with Nick, contributing writer at The Intercept, to discuss his piece, a post-mortem of that fatal drone strike, and the wider context of AFRICOM's drone war across the region, from the Obama administration through the present day. We also discussed why this special operations strike cell, quote, seemed like they did everything wrong, according to one American drone pilot who worked in Somalia. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 13th, Anatomy of a Somali Drone Strike, with Nick Terse. You recently published a story in The Intercept, and I would love to start there. Uh, so first, what happened in late March 2018? And if you could introduce us to some of the characters in your story as we go. Sure. Thanks again for, for having me back on. Uh, it's always great to be on, on the podcast. You know, this is, uh, it's the, the first ever Pentagon investigation of a, a drone strike in Africa, which we're publishing at The Intercept. And it's an inquiry into uh, an April 1st, 2018 attack in Somalia that killed a young mother her name is uh, Lil Dahir Muhammad, and her four-year-old daughter, uh, Miriam Shiloh Muse. Uh, they were civilians who lived in an Al-Shabaab-controlled area, and uh, they were at the wrong place uh, at the wrong time. Uh, they caught a ride with uh, some individuals, uh, some of whom were part of the terror group Al-Shabaab, and some, like them, were probably just uh, civilians who uh, made the mistake of getting in the wrong car, uh, this is a you know, public transportation in, in rural Somalia is uh, 
is at a premium. So it's not uncommon for, for people to share vehicles. And uh, they happen to be in a vehicle on the, on the day that a months-long U.S. effort at, at targeting uh, a very low-level uh, individual in Al-Shabaab uh, came to its culmination. And they were, they were killed in the process uh, during a, a drone strike that was, was actually several missiles fired, uh, a double-tap strike, and they were killed in the, in the last of the missiles. And as I understand it, you you were doing some reporting in Somalia. Uh, you spoke with some of the relatives of the victims in Mogadishu uh, and others who are familiar with it. If you could describe briefly what Miriam's brother Qasim found uh, when he arrived at the scene shortly after the attack. Yeah, Qasim Dahir Muhammad, her brother, Lil's brother, and the, uh, the uncle of the four-year-old child who was killed was the first person on the scene. He was actually uh, en route to try and, and pick up his, his sister and his niece. And uh, again, this is, this is a fact of rural Somalia. Al-Shabaab has great sway over the telecom companies there and had uh, switched off the phones. So they weren't able to connect by phone. And that's why uh, Lil and Miriam had, had caught a ride in this vehicle. And uh, word travels fast. Uh, after the, the drone strike, he actually heard the explosion. He wasn't very far away. And the telecom switched on the, the, the phones, and he was quickly appraised the fact that, uh, that this vehicle had been hit, and he was frantically calling his, his sister, but her phone just rang and rang. So he found out where the strike had taken place, and he drove to that spot. And what he found was uh, a vehicle that was uh, on fire. The, the top of it had been smashed. There were four dead men inside. Uh, one young man who had been uh, thrown from the vehicle, who we found on the road, but there was no sign of, uh, of Lil or Miriam anywhere around the vehicle. Uh, he had to actually walk uh, something like 200 feet up the road uh, before he he found them. And you know he he found uh, his sister in a tremendously mutilated condition. She was clutching her daughter. Uh, they were both dead and. He spent the next uh, several hours, he'd torn uh, a, a portion of his uh, clothing, uh, what they call a, a, a mahuis in, in uh, Somali or, or a sarong. He tore a piece off and began uh, collecting fragments of, of his sister. And he did this for, I think, uh, a couple hours, eventually having to turn the, the lights of uh, the headlights of his car on uh, to try and, and collect you know, the, the remnants of her body. And he wasn't even able to, uh, under the, the strictures of Islam, you're supposed to, to wash the body in a, a certain manner. But, uh, you know, she was, she was too terribly mutilated to do so. He had to actually just wrap her body and he buried his, uh, his sister and his niece uh, that evening. And I'm sure it's incredibly difficult to describe, but uh, I thank you for doing so because it's, as you know, important context when we get into discussions of, of blowback and you know the upshot of attacks like this. But one thing that I, I want to s- start out with is, as you mentioned, this Pentagon investigation that you were able to acquire and review offers a pretty unprecedented look into the anatomy of a drone strike in the Africa, you know, region uh, under Africom. From what you learned from the document itself, from 
interviews that you conducted with uh, drone operators and others. Can you walk us through that drone strike from the target development to the strike itself, and then any sort of you know reporting that the military does uh, in its aftermath? Yeah, so the documents refer to months long of, of target development, and it's it's not clear. Uh, there's there's the documents are heavily redacted. These are uh, it's a secret investigation, uh, an AR fifteen six of uh, this drone strike, but um, there still is a lot that that comes through. So it's it's unclear exactly how long they they were following individuals in this car. But, uh, but at least it had started months prior. And this was conducted by a, a special operations task force that U.S. officials won't name. Uh, they were watching live footage of, of this. It's a, it was a Toyota pickup truck. They refused to release that, that footage, but they have it. And yeah, they, they watched this with, um, you know, and, and scrutinized this, this video in real time chronicling each uh, what they call an ADM or adult male who got in or out of the vehicle, where they walked, what they did. And they log these uh, very minute details with a, a pretense of precision. But it really comes through in the investigation file that they never understood what they were seeing. You know, for, for all their technology, all their supposed expertise, what comes through in the file is that the Americans were confused some of them were uh, very inexperienced, and they said this quite quite blatantly to the uh, to the investigator. And you know, in the end, they got even the most basic details uh, of this wrong, like how many people were in the vehicle. You know, they they couldn't tell a man from a woman. Uh, they never noticed that there was a child, and you know, if if they had noticed a woman, it may have affected their decision to strike. Uh, if they had noticed a child, it should have caused them to stand down, but these things never happened. And they mention in the investigation file that uh, that at the end of this process, at the end of, of months of target development, that they were in an extreme rush to carry out this strike. Those uh, The reasons for it don't come through in the files, but when I was talking with uh, an intelligence analyst who knew about this incident... And I talked to a, uh, a strike cell analyst and drone operator who worked in Somalia at about the same time. Uh, they both offered, you know, some clues as to, to why this may have happened, that uh, there was a, a great pressure at that time to conduct strikes, that uh, there were uh, commanders of strike cells who carry out drone strikes at that time in, in Libya, in Somalia, in Yemen, who were competing for body count, uh, that there had been new awards uh, or uh, devices for awards that were uh, just introduced that uh, that caused drone operators to uh, to compete with one another to uh, try and, and get these uh, these awards or citations. And the drone uh, operator that I talked with said that it looked like just about everything that could go wrong with the strike did go wrong. And you know, he just thought it was the completely unprofessional the way that this was carried out. You know, he and but but he wasn't shocked by it. He said that this was the attitude that he encountered at the time when he was serving in Somalia. Yeah, and I just want to dwell on one aspect of the strike itself that you mentioned: uh, the fact that it was a double tap. You you describe in your piece that somehow miraculously Lowell and Miriam 
survived the f- the first strike and, and actually fled the vehicle, which is one of the reasons why they were found, um, you know, hundreds of meters away, as you mentioned. What is the the decision there in the Joint Operations Center? What are the drone operators actually viewing on their screens when they see uh, this sort of figure flee the vehicle? And as you mentioned uh, in your piece, there was a sort of instantaneous decision made to send in the second strike. Can you walk us through that process as far as you can understand it? Yeah. I mean, there's really just an oblique reference uh, at the beginning of the investigation file that mentions a, a sole survivor uh, running post first strike, something along those lines. Uh, this is actually two people, Miriam uh, and Lil, uh, running down the road, and they got about 200 feet away before they were hit. So uh, it wasn't very long. It is it is shocking that they were able to survive that strike because the the pickup truck that they were riding in in the passenger seat was was hit dead on and it killed all the other occupants of that vehicle. But yeah, somehow they survived and they ran down the road. Now, yeah, I talked to uh, some military lawyers. I talked to this uh, the strike cell analyst, intelligence analyst. All of them were sort of incredulous that uh, that this could happen. That uh, there seems to be no uh, assessment that was done after the first strike as to who who might be running down the road. The drone pilot that I talked to, who had extensive experience in Somalia, uh, said that. Um, you know, as long as the strike was during the day, which this was, there should have been no question that this was uh, at least a woman running down the road just from her dress. Uh, she was wearing a, a jabab, which is um, it's a more voluminous uh, Islamic garb than just uh, just hijab. Covers the entire body except for the, um, the the head and the or the hands and the feet. And you know, he said that uh, that it was it was just impossible a mistake. A, a man in rural Somalia for for a woman, and this is also something that I heard from a uh, a Somali official uh, named Nor Gatali, who serves on the the front lines of the conflict, has worked with uh, U.S. Africa Command, worked with the U.S. military before, uh, provided them with intelligence. But he was just um, he was really beside himself. He he couldn't believe that uh, that the Americans could uh, mistake you know a woman for a man, and said that. Even if they had uh, missed this when she was entering the vehicle, which they had eyes on through the drone uh, footage, that there was no way as she was running down the road that they could uh, you know, mistake her for a man. So this was just another instance of the U.S. getting it wrong and, and seemingly being in such a rush to, uh, to get this kill that they, they mistook or, or you know, failed to, to notice that this was a, a woman and a child. And what was the immediate response from the U.S. government in the aftermath of the attack? What was the first mention of it, let's say, from from AFRICOM? And then I should also pause at this point and ask what the U.S. government's response has been to your questions regarding the story, if anything. Yeah. So uh, immediately after the strike, the next day, AFRICOM uh, issued a press release that said that they had killed five, and this is a, their quote, terrorists, and that... Uh, you know, that no civilians had been killed in the attack. But, you know, Somali sources, Somali media uh, almost immediately uh, contradicted this and said that uh, that civilians had been killed. There was definitely a woman and a child. You know, they, they mention, um, 
they had the, the names of, of those who were killed in the reporting right afterward. It was, um, it was, it was pretty ex- extensive and, um, you know, very, very detailed information there. And these allegations did bubble up to the task force that conducted the strike. And within a month they had, uh, or the, the next month, I should say, they had appointed an investigator. And by the end of, you know, this, the strike took place in April, uh, the investigation or the investigator was, uh, was named in, in May and the investigator had finished his work, uh, by late June of, of 2018 and concluded that, uh, that a civilian woman and child had been killed in the strike. But this wasn't reported to you know, the American public, to Congress, until well over a year after the strike. And AFRICOM uh, officially said that, uh, that they weren't informed of this uh, investigation, that it, had, uh, it was conducted by the task force of the task force, and that the task force had just uh, kept hold of the investigation and never sent it to AFRICOM headquarters. Now... Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I heard some things during my reporting that, uh, that made me doubt this, but, uh, but this is the official line from AFRICOM and AFRICOM talked to me about this strike right after it happened when I had questions in, in 2018, but during the reporting of this article, which has been, you know, over the, the last year that I've been working on this, AFRICOM did, uh, did not provide answers to any questions that I asked about this strike in particular, or even about uh, civilian casualties in general, and uh, about how investigations are carried out. Uh, They told me that they had uh, no comment on any of it. And focusing on the report now itself, uh, first, I'm curious how you were able to acquire it. I think you mentioned it was through a FOIA request, and I'm I'm curious whether it was an especially arduous one (laughs) compared to your past reporting. And then, you know, the the report itself you mentioned a, a few of the findings, including a, a significant lack of experience among the strike cell team. But I'm curious, you know, what else the report said, you know, if they if it found fault in any of the operators, uh, if it made any recommendations, anything like that? Yes, uh, this was obtained uh, through the Freedom of Information Act, and it was uh, especially arduous. I think I had to file the request uh, several times to get them to, to act on it, appeal it. Yeah, one, one appeal of it. And, you know, it's, it was a, a real FOIA fight to, to get a hold of this. Uh, I was, but I was you know, pleasantly surprised by how much of the investigation file was there. Uh, again, it's, it's heavily redacted, but there's enough that gets through, obviously, that I was, I was able to, to write this article. And, you know, while, while a lot of the the minute details and, and obviously the, the names of the individuals involved and uh, even the name of the, the task force, any of the, the video footage, the, the snaps, as they call them, the, um, you know, the, the outtakes of the footage, snippets of it, all of that is redacted. But, uh, but the investigation, there's enough that there to really get a sense, uh, one, of how uh, strikes are, are carried out in Africa at this time. And also of, of all the, the many faults that were involved in this. You know, as you said, I, I, I mentioned that uh, inexperience was something that, uh, that came up a lot in the file. The investigator mentioned that there was, uh, that the, the strike cell wasn't using the, the latest software that was available for uh, analysis. There was, you know, an argument with, between strike cell members about how many individuals were 
in the uh, vehicle on the day of the strike. Uh, they never got that number right. And even uh, in the post-strike review, when they had their most uh, senior, most experienced uh, full motion video analyst, the person that uh, spent about 10 years uh, watching drone footage, even watching again and again, he never got the the number of individuals in it right, uh, even through all this post-strike analysis. So it really casts uh, doubt on on how how precise the U.S. air war can be, and and what precision strikes really mean. You know this this all comes through in there. At the end of the day, though, even though the investigator found that a woman and child were killed, uh, that the team didn't see them, that uh, you know they never saw a child, uh, that they called a miscalled a, a a woman an adult male. At the end of the day, they said that the uh, rules of engagement in the strike were followed, uh, that there was, uh, they found uh, that uh, all the standard operating procedures were the same as for any strike, uh, which is uh, frightening on a lot of levels. And uh, they didn't sanction any individuals. All they said was that uh, basically that there should be a, a briefing before uh, any other strikes to let the team know that uh, precision was more important than speed, but there's uh, there's no indication that actually that was was passed on or, or acted upon in any way. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got 
my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, despite these findings of lack of experience and so on, the, the report found that the rules of engagement were followed. So I want to pose a question that um, I believe Miriam's father posed to you, which is, how can you admit that you killed two civilians and also say the rules were followed? I guess, in other words, what were the rules of engagement in, in 2018 under the Trump administration? And was this, you know, for example, just a, a permissible amount of collateral damage in the eyes of that administration? What was the context at the time of the Trump drone program, especially in Somalia? Yes, um, this isn't in the investigation file, but uh, in the course of my reporting, I, I really delved into, you know, what what the, the rules of engagement looked like. And there had been safeguards uh, in place uh, under the Obama administration. Uh, still, civilians were being killed, but uh, there were more stringent rules at that time. And they began to evaporate once Trump took office in, in 2017. And it, it really looks like their absence was was felt across Africa and and the, the greater Middle East. You know, just days after Trump entered the, uh, the White House, uh, the Pentagon was uh, 
Secretary of Defense uh, Jim Mattis at the time, reportedly asked for parts of Somalia to be declared an area of active hostilities. And that phrase really means that uh, the military is able to employ looser war zone type targeting, despite the lack of a you know, congressional declaration of war. You know, the, the AFRICOM commander at the time, uh, General Thomas Waldhauser, he was, he was lobbying for this publicly. And he said that uh, it would give AFRICOM the, the type of flexibility and, uh, and timeliness that it needed to, to conduct strikes. You know, under, uh, you know, obviously under international law, you know, governments uh, can't, you know, outside of recognized battlefields, uh, summarily kill people they deem to be enemies if they don't pose a, an imminent danger to human life or can't be stopped in, in some other fashion. But, um, but Trump, you know, secretly issued rules for counterterrorism, what they call direct action operations. So drone strikes, uh, ground raids that gave uh, military commanders uh, on the ground uh, a lot more latitude, the type that, that Waldhauser was, was asking for. And um, you can see this in a, in a redacted copy of, um, of Trump's um, these, these uh, targeting principles that, that were released uh, in the early days of the, the Biden administration uh, as a result of, I think it was an ACLU lawsuit. So, you know, by the end of March 2017, so about a year before uh, this drone strike took place, uh, a large swath of, of southern Somalia was designated a de facto war zone. And, you know, in the year that followed, uh, the number of, of drone strikes uh, skyrocketed. Uh, I talked to the head of, uh, of Special Operations Command Africa uh, at that time uh, in 2017. He, he saw as a general, uh, Brigadier General Don Bolduck, and he saw this changeover from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. And he said that the, the burden of proof uh, as far as who could be targeted and, and for what reason uh, just dramatically changed. And I heard the same thing from the, the strike cell analyst, who had also been a drone pilot there in, in Somalia. And he said that during the Obama administration, you know, strikes required a, a very high level approval. But he said that uh, giving that, that strike authority uh, to ground commanders was, was massively different. And it had a, a huge effect upon, you know, how the, the drone war was waged. In that, that first year after Trump relaxed the targeting principles, attacks in Somalia tripled. And, you know, over the course of, of his administration, uh, the U.S. conducted more than 200 declared strikes in Somalia. It was an almost a, a 500% increase over the eight years of the Obama presidency. So, you know, it was, it was a massive change. And I think it's one of the, the key reasons that, uh, that this attack was, was carried out. And that, um, you know, it was, it was so, uh, faulty in its, its design, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, a key reason why uh, a woman and child were then killed in the strike. You've done a great job taking us through those changes from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. Now I'm curious about the the change to the Biden administration. Um, as I'm sure you know, and, and I'm sure many of our listeners know, the Biden administration issued new rules for, for the drone program, purportedly tightening some of these limits that were loosened significantly under the Trump administration, as you well laid out. So I'm curious, you know, what to make of the the Biden administration's winding down of the drone program. I guess my question would be, could this same 
mistake or this same civilian death by drone strike occur now under the Biden drone program? Well, I, I think, you know, the the Biden guidance on drone strikes, it, it seems to be to mirror the, the Obama era rules uh, from, from what we can tell. And certainly the strikes have, have decreased. The Biden administration has conducted about uh, I think 31 declared strikes in Somalia since he came into office, uh, about uh, 13 so far this year. You know, I think the Biden rules, like the Obama rules, uh, have a, a clause in there that includes a near certainty uh, that civilians won't be injured or killed, slightly tightened over over the, the Trump language. So, you know, I, I think on that level, I mean, there's just, uh, you know, far fewer strikes being carried out. So there's less of an opportunity for this to happen. But if you, you know, examining this document, I think the, the same type of mistakes can be made because what comes through is that, you know, one, uh, this is the way that, that all drone strikes were basically carried out, that uh, it, it followed all the standard operating procedures and rules of engagement, and that uh, you know, the, the U.S. analysts just did not understand what they were seeing. You know, they, they weren't able to evaluate that full motion video and, and understand exactly you know, what was happening before their eyes. Uh, the fact that they, they couldn't see a woman or they, they saw a woman but thought it was a, a man, that they completely missed a child that tells me that uh, that you know U.S. Uh, precision targeting is not that precise, and that uh, watching full motion video is not foolproof. Uh, so, you know, I think the same thing can happen, but with less strikes, uh, there's less of an opportunity for these mistakes to happen. Right. You know, as you mentioned, any drone strike carries the risk of a civilian death, which seems you know reason enough to to dwell on this and. But on the other hand, you know, I think as you laid out in your piece, there was a, a statement by Defense Secretary Austin who who said that there's no plan to to or no intent to relitigate cases. So, uh, you know, I'm sure as the Defense Department would like to to look forward, uh, the Biden administration with its new rules, I'm sure would like to look forward. Um, so, what are the other reasons for revisiting this episode from 2018? I'm sure it obviously still matters a great deal to Lowell and Miriam's family, for example. But, um, you know, what are the what are the impacts of leaving an episode like this as it was or, you know, unaccountable? Yeah, I think, I mean, one reason to revisit it is that uh, the, the current Republican frontrunner is, uh, is Donald Trump. I think there's a, a strong possibility that, uh, that he'll be the nominee and, uh, you know, could be reelected again. So the targeting guidance uh, could certainly uh, change in uh, the very near future. Uh, back to what it was uh, when he was uh, first in office. So I think that's one reason why this matters and, and understanding how strikes were carried out, you know, during the uh, the Trump administration uh, is still relevant. And uh, for the reason that you mentioned that the it, it matters to this family, you know, the, the U.S. Uh, claims, you know, last year it um, uh, the, the U.S. came out with a uh, civilian harm uh, mitigation plan, uh, the so-called CHIMRAP, and you know the U.S. said that it was it was going to turn over a new leaf in its its drone strikes uh, and and the way it uh, the way it looks at civilian harm, the way it investigates. 
uh, the way it makes uh, reparations. And you're right, Secretary Austin said that uh, they weren't interested in relitigating. Uh, but this case uh, doesn't require relitigation. Before Austin said that, uh, the U.S. had uh, come out and said that uh, that civilians were killed in the strike. So there's there's no relitigation necessary. They they've already acknowledged that this happened. The documents that I have and uh, the story that I tell show that you know this is a, a very clear case where you know that the, the Pentagon made grave mistakes, and you know experts that I talked to said this is also the perfect, maybe the the best opportunity in in Africa for the the Pentagon to show that it's it's interested in revising its its civilian harm principles, that this is. Uh, you know, the, the best possible case uh, to reach out to a family, to make an apology, to offer compensation, and to show that, you know, it's, it's the dawn of a new day at the, at the Pentagon. Uh, the family has been attempting to, to contact uh, AFRICOM now for, for five years. There is an English-speaking member of the family who lives uh, part-time in, in Mogadishu. He's gone to Somali government ministries and asked them to intercede. He uh, wrote to AFRICOM through their uh, contact us page uh, just after AFRICOM acknowledged the strike uh, in 2019. AFRICOM put in a civilian casualty portal, which, um, you know, it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's not set up in, in any kind of way that's conducive to uh, Somali victims or, or survivors uh, to put in requests. But I think he's one of the few who who navigated the whole process and put in a request for for compensation uh, through that mechanism. He actually shared screenshots of it uh, with me, uh, showed me when when he uh, sent these into Africom, uh, the letter that he sent. They they tried every channel uh, available to them to try and get the the U.S. military to go beyond just acknowledging that this uh, that this took place, but to you know, to, to go that extra step and actually offer a, an apology and, and some sort of reparations. You know, it's, it's my hope that, uh, that this, uh, this story can, can put this back on the, uh, you know, the, the front burner for the, uh, for AFRICOM, for the Pentagon and, uh, and help this family maybe achieve some, some measure of accountability. Right. So as you mentioned, Miriam's family has received, you know, no official apology, no compensation of any kind, no reparations. What is the normal compensation reparation process? Um, I think you mentioned in, in your piece that the Department of Defense maintains a, a $3 million annual budget for, for compensating civilian victims of uh, drone strikes. Ha- have other families who have suffered sim- similar deaths in their family been able to successfully secure compensation or is this pretty typical a pretty typical experience it's it's unfortunately a, a very typical experience you know the uh, as you say the uh, the Pentagon has a, a three million dollar annual budget to compensate survivors there's no evidence that any uh, Somali victims or their families have ever received amends I've asked the Pentagon about this I've asked Africom about this you know neither has has offered uh, you know, any information uh, in that regard, we know from the New York Times uh, Asma Khan, who's done extensive reporting on uh, the U.S. air war in Iraq and Syria, uh, that you know, out of I think in, in her reporting, uh, something like thirteen hundred military reports of this type, she analyzed, and 
I think there were uh, something like a, a, a dozen or, or less condolence payments that were made. So they have been paid out uh, in the Middle East before. I don't think any have ever been paid out in Africa. Certainly none have ever been announced. But this does offer an opportunity for the Pentagon to, to finally make amends in, in one case. And in addition to the family hopefully securing some sort of apology or compensation, which seems a worthy enough uh, reason to, to undertake this reporting, I'm curious what else you hope comes of this. I'm thinking particularly, you know, in terms of transparency into, into the drone program, for example, it seems remarkable that this is the first inquiry uh, that's been made public thanks to your freedom of information request uh, into a drone strike in Africa. What else do you hope is an upshot of, of this reporting? Yeah, I, I really uh, am hoping that it just shines more of a spotlight on the uh, U.S. air war program in Africa, like so much of, of U.S. military and activity in Africa. You know, it's it's gone under-examined for, for many years. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that that shining light on it will, you know, open up some a few more avenues. It's uh, it was very difficult to get people to talk for this story. There's so much secrecy surrounding the program, but I'm I'm hopeful that exposing what I have will help to um, you know hopefully uh, get some other people to uh, to come forward and and talk about uh, their experiences uh, conducting the drone war there. I'm hoping that it will you know, spur some other reporters to, uh, to also, uh, dig into this further. It's, it's a, a subject that, uh, has just gone undercovered and basically uncovered in, in many respects for, for a long time. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just hoping to spur, uh, more transparency, more accountability and use this as, as, uh, just, a, another way for Americans to, to, have some insights on, on what the, the U S military is doing in their name in these undeclared wars, you know, around the globe. Well, it's, a, it's an important piece. And, and I thank you for your reporting. Uh, Nick Terse, thanks again for, for joining me on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. While you're at it, check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.